And these verses are so, so crucial here. If you have a Bible, I I encourage you, highlight it, circle it, block it off, especially four through six. It is very, very, very important here. So let me read verse three. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. All right, crucial verses here. So now what happens is they're on the mountain. God is giving instructions to Moses, and God is promising here to make Israel a a holy, royal, priestly nation. Now, he is fulfilling the promise. Like if you go back to Genesis chapter 12 and elsewhere, remember that God made a a threefold oath to Abraham. And the first is, I'll make of you a great nation. All right. The first promise, I will make of you a great nation. You'll have many descendants. They'll have the land. This is the beginning of of the fulfillment of that promise. God is making them a nation, his own special nation right here. Okay. So in so doing, what I really want to point out here in verse four is when God, God starts off this entire structure of the covenant here, chapters 19 through chapter 24, all of this begins with this fundamental truth in verse 4. You see what I, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, God, this has been the plan all along. God redeemed Israel. God brought judgment upon Egypt to bring his people to himself. That is really, really beautiful. God loved them first. God moved for, acted first on their behalf. It's like 1 John chapter 4, 19, the famous line, we love because God loved us first. We didn't love God and God was like, okay, you love me, I'll love you back. That sounds fair. No, the divine creator loved us first. And it's certainly true with Jesus Christ, but it's been true all along in salvation history. This whole story of redemption in the Exodus about how God acts first to bring them to himself at this point, at this mountain. It's so beautiful here. On eagle's wings, you think every time I read this verse, I think of the, of the famous song here on eagle's wings. But that's exactly what he's doing. It's a, it's a beautiful image of protection, of care uh, of his people here. All right. So that before we talk about anything else in this particular lesson, as well as part two in the next lesson, it's that God acted first on behalf of love for his people. Everything else must be seen in that context. So he says this, I took care of you. I brought you out to myself. Now, verse five here, he says, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be my own special possession. So let's look at this first. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, I highly encourage you to circle the word if. That is crucial. You need to obey my voice and you need to keep my covenant. If you do, then you will be greatly blessed. So what God is talking about here, obeying my voice and keeping my covenant here, that's going to be the subject matter for chapters 20 through 23. The Ten Commandments in chapter 20, the covenant code is what it's called in 20 through 23. If Israel obeys God and keeps the commandments and keeps the various laws and stipulations that are set forth in chapters 21 through 23, then God will be their God, and he and they will be his special possession. We'll talk about that in just just three seconds here, almost. Okay, so it is a conditional promise here that all the blessings of the covenant do hinge on the fact that they must obey. Now, God is faithful. God will never be unfaithful to his people. That is proved over and over and over again in the scriptures. But Israel must obey God, and if they do, they will be his own special possession. Now, that word 
possession amongst all peoples. That word is segulah. I have it right here in your notes. S-E-G-U-L-L-A-H. Segulah. That is a very crucial word here, uh, or here, but of course in all of Scripture. I have a footnote for you. I'd actually like to read it because this word is very significant. So your commentary, actually it's on the Deuteronomy commentary, not the Exodus one. It says this, Segulah means property, often with the connotation of something highly valued and carefully guarded. As a secular term, it can refer to the royal treasures of a king. As a theological term, it describes Israel as a people elected and loved by the Lord. Israel is God's treasured possession, the people he cherishes and protects as uniquely his own. Later in the Old Testament, when a time of judgment becomes necessary, the Lord promises to smuggle out a faithful remnant within Israel as his special possession. And the idea of segulah carries over into the New Testament as a description of the messianic people of God in Titus and 1 Peter. Okay, So you can see here from this quote, this is a very significant word. Israel is not an afterthought for God. Israel is front and center in God's own mind here, metaphorically speaking. Uh, Israel is cherished and beloved by God. And in fact, Moses will say this later on in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy is his last will and testament. Uh, But he will say in in chapter 7, verses 6 and following, commenting on this particular point here. So really Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 is a commentary of this verse here in chapter 19, verse 6. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, for his own segulah, out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that, that, than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you are fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you, is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you, from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, end quote there. That's a very beautiful line. Whenever I teach Deuteronomy, I love to emphasize this, that God has set his heart upon Israel. They are to be a holy people, consecrated, set apart as a special possession. Why? Not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, but because of grace. The Lord set his love upon them and chose them because he's faithful to the covenant that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's redeemed them from from Egypt because of this love. That is so beautiful here. What God wants to do for Israel, and by extension, the church, the new Israel, needs to be understood in this light, how much the Lord loves us. I will say one other thing here. Language like this, here in Exodus chapter 19, in Deuteronomy, not just chapter 7, but so many other places, it really shows us that the God of the Old Testament is not this caricature of you know, wrath and hatred uh, and, and vengeance. A lot of people say the Old Testament God is just so horrible. Think, thanks, thanks, thank heaven that Jesus came along because they have this depiction of Jesus as somebody you know, throwing daisies around in the field saying, I'm okay, you're okay. It's all a caricature. The God of the Old Testament is so loving and so compassionate. He desires to be with his people. And I really like to emphasize that when reading passages like this. This is not an angry, vengeful, wrathful God here. Absolutely not. This is a God who deeply loves his people and has called them. Okay, And so the Catechism will comment on this as well in 2810. From the covenant of Sinai onwards, this people is his own. And it is to be a holy or consecrated, is the same word in Hebrew, it could be a holy or consecrated nation because the name of God dwells within it. That's beautiful. They're holy, they're consecrated because God is with his people. 
So that is really beautiful. Now at this point, and you explain this to, to, to individuals that, they, that Israel is called apart. He called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and sell, and uh, promised a covenant to them, swore a covenant to them. Now he's fulfilling that covenant and calling Israel out as a special possession. That's all beautiful, absolutely. But a lot of people will say, well, how unfair is this God, right? There's always all kinds of objections against God, and you're not surprised to hear that. How unfair is this God to love Israel? Like, what, what a, again, what a wrathful, you know, vengeful, unfair God who doesn't love all the other nations. What about those poor Egyptians that just got annihilated in this uh, Theomachy? Remember the divine smackdown we saw at the plagues. What about the poor Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and all these other nations? Why does God just love Israel? Okay. Well, the point is that God loves Israel and calls Israel apart and consecrates them and makes them holy for the sake of all the nations. You know, again, go back to Genesis, the threefold covenant that God made with Abraham. God said to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. I'll make you a great name, right? Kings will come forth from you. But then ultimately, it all is going to be looking towards the fulfillment of the third blessing, the third covenant, which is worldwide blessing. All nations will be blessed through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. That's the name of the game. That's the goal all along. All nations will be blessed through Israel. And this next verse here is going to explain this point very, very clearly and very beautifully here. So if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession, my own segula among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is super significant. I highlight that, underline it, star it, whatever you got to do. This verse, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation or a royal priesthood, it's also translated in a holy nation. Uh, that's that's their identity here, okay? And this verse needs to be understood clearly with what God said about Israel back in chapter 422. Remember, God said, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, that he may serve me, avod me. So 422 clarifies God, uh, that Israel is God's firstborn son. And now God is saying, you'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Together, the concept here is that Israel is God's firstborn son. And the firstborn son in the, in the Hebrew culture here, as well as the other cultures, is that the firstborn son has the blessing and the birthright. Think back to the story of Jacob and Esau. We talked about that in that other Bible study there. Israel now is going to have the blessing and the birthright in order to serve the rest of the children, to serve the siblings here. That was the responsibility of the firstborn son, to, to be a priest, right? To be a priest and have obligations, responsibilities on behalf of the rest of the family to help lead them to God, to protect them, to care for them, and all of this. That's what Israel must do. So Israel is God's firstborn son to do precisely that, to, to bless all of God's other children, which would be all the nations. So yes, the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Americans and the Italians and all the other rest of the nations, all of them are going to be blessed at least this was the goal here. We'll talk about how Jesus fulfills this later. Uh, they're going to be blessed. All nations will be blessed through Israel. So God's going to consecrate them here in order to serve as a royal priesthood, a holy nation to lead all the other nations to God. That is beautiful. So God is not being unfair. God has a plan. He's setting apart Israel for this awesome, holy responsibility. Israel has to be holy. That's what chapter 19, verse 6 is all about. I'm going to make you a holy nation. And we're going to see in Leviticus, our next Bible study, Leviticus 19, uh, and as well as elsewhere, you must be holy for I am holy. To be part of God's people is to be transformed into the likeness and image of God. 
to be holy as he is holy, and therefore to teach all the other nations to be holy as well. This is the name of the game. This is what it's all about. And again, if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses will say something very similar. He says, quote, Behold, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land which you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and ordinances so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? End quote. That, that is awesome. And that's really sharing or explaining to us Israel's vocation, right? The, the, the mission here. They are supposed to keep the law so that way it would be their wisdom and their understanding in the sight of all peoples. So all the nations round about, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and all these other ites and Babylonians and all the rest of them throughout salvation history, the goal all along was these nations will see Israel, see their relationship with God, see their relationship with each other, and say, wow, I want that too. This is a wise and understanding people. They have a God so close to them that we've never seen before. This is Old Testament evangelization, you guys. This is Old Testament evangelization. And, and the same thing is true for us today, right? People should need to see us as Christians, as Catholics, and say, wow, what a virtuous, holy person or church or parish this is. I want what they have. They have something that I don't, I, I don't, I don't have that peace. I don't have that joy. Uh, there's something missing in my life. Even if life is going pretty good, there's something missing. There's a hole in my soul that I just can't fill. And they should see us and be like, wow, this is a, a, a wise and understanding people these Catholics that I'm, that I'm getting to know here. So this is, this is the whole point. They see us and they want what we have. This is a gift of grace. So back to Israel then. Israel is called to accomplish this responsibility as the firstborn son, as this royal priesthood, as this kingdom of priests, to bring blessings to other nations. I can't emphasize this enough. So many people, whenever I teach classes, and I've been doing this you know, 15 years now, uh, you teach classes and people do ask this question. They hear it and they hear it around in secular circles and elsewhere that God is unfair. God is cruel. Doesn't he love all the nations, blah, blah, blah. Well, he does, but this is his plan. Okay, this is the plan that God has set aside from the beginning of time to call Israel to bring blessings, worldwide blessings to everybody. Okay, so um, keep, so yeah, always keep Abraham in mind here, that threefold covenant oath that God made with Abraham that, that's really at the background to all of this stuff. Alrighty, so this covenant at Mount Sinai then is going to ratify this vocation, this identity, this mission, this relationship that God has with his people. That's the purpose of all of this. God is swearing, hey, if you obey me, you'll be my own possession. You're going to be my firstborn son. You're going to be my bride. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, all of this stuff. Okay? So now, unfortunately, you go through salvation history, as I, did in my, as I did in my salvation history course, Israel fails over and over and over again. Ultimately, it's going to be Jesus Christ, the true firstborn son of God. Now, Israel is called God's firstborn son, but they fail. Like Adam, Adam is the son of God and he failed. Israel is the son of God and they're going to fail. You know, uh, even the son of David is known as the son of God. Solomon, he fails. But Jesus is the true son of God. All right, by his essence, his nature, 
All right, not by creation, uh, not by adoption, but by his nature. He's the firstborn. He's the only begotten son of God, and he will fulfill this mission. Okay, because he really is the means by which all nations will be blessed through the establishment of the new Israel, the new church, the new temple. And this is what first Peter has in mind in chapter two, verse five. He says, like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house. That's that's a new temple, right? To be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When he says to be a holy priesthood, he has Exodus chapter 19 in the back of his mind here, or even at the forefront of his mind, honestly, because now we are this holy priesthood. We are the new Israel. We are the new uh, gathering. We are those, the ecclesias, um, those that are called out of, we're called out of the world, we're consecrated in order to be a holy priesthood, a, a holy nation, a holy church, offering spiritual sacrifices up to God. So that's really beautiful here. The, the church is the new Israel, and God hasn't abandoned this goal, this oath that he swore that all nations would be blessed. So when Jesus comes as the firstborn son of God, the only begotten son of God, right? He establishes the church through his body and blood on the cross. Uh, and that's where the blood and water pours forth from his side. That's all sacramental imagery right there. And now ever since, nations upon nations and peoples upon peoples have been coming into the, to, to his bride, his church, the new Israel. It's, it's so fantastic, okay? So the New Testament is really fulfilling this covenant at Mount Sinai. And there's more to say about that in the next lesson here when we look at chapter 24 specifically, okay? So these verses, here we are, you know, we're over 20 minutes into this lesson and we've only been looking at a few verses, but they're so crucial and so fundamental. If you can only memorize two verses in this whole book, memorize chapter 422 and chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Those are big, big takeaways.